Welcome to the Natural Curiosity Project. I'm Steve Shepard. This episode is about storytelling. Actually, every episode I produce is about telling stories. That's what I do. I'm a storyteller. Out of all the topics I teach or have written about or have been asked to give keynotes or executive workshops about, storytelling is always at the top of the list. People love stories. We're hardwired for them. Language gives us the ability to tell stories, and stories allow us to communicate emotions and complex concepts. And communication in the form of stories allows us to create community and a sense of belonging to something greater than our individual selves, and that, of course, leads to commerce and many other things. So whether I'm talking about a leadership concept or bioluminescence or the role of humor in the workplace or technology or any of the other topics I've covered in this curiosity-driven series, you'll find that every time I wrap the message in a story. Why? Because most people will forget 95% of the facts you tell them. That's a real number. But if you wrap them in a story, they'll remember. But I can give you a better reason to tell them. People who tell stories are in the emotional transportation business. Their goal is to take their audience from one place to another place. The poet Maya Angelou said it really well. People will forget what you said. People will forget what you did. But they will never forget how you made them feel. And that is the role of the story. Sometimes I interview people on this program just because they're great storytellers and because they have great stories to tell. And that's the case with this episode. My guest is Jim Mulvihill. He's my friend Pete Mulvihill's dad. If you've been a regular listener to this podcast, you've met Pete a few times in a handful of episodes. He's also one of my trusted editors, and his name often pops up in my books, either to give him credit and thanks for his laser-focused editing or for his willingness to lend his name to characters in my novels. Anyway, Jim's stories are so good. They're so much fun to listen to that the only time you'll hear my voice in this episode is when I ask him an occasional question, just to provide you with some context. Now, a bit of background. Jim spent his career in the Navy driving ships, and I mean big ships. He's been around a long time. In fact, on one voyage, he was crossing the Atlantic, and he overtook the Mayflower. I'll let Jim tell the story. It wasn't the original Mayflower. I missed that one. I was in the Navy and on a destroyer out of Newport, Rhode Island, and we were playing games with submarines and stuff like that about 350 miles east of here. And uh, it was when the Mayflower II, the replica, was sailing from England to uh, Plymouth, Massachusetts. And we knew we were on their track, and sure enough, it came over the horizon. I was commanding officer of the squadron of ships on there. And he said, we ought to go alongside them and give them some fresh food because they had been at sea for three or four weeks already. So we went over there and uh, we had to be very careful not to go on their windward side to steal their wind, you know, be a horrid thing. So we went alongside them and it was nice talking to Captain Villiers, had some nice stories to tell. And we sent over a whole bunch of fresh food liven up their the canned goods that they'd been eating for a while. We had been at sea for about three or four days, and we sent over all the older newspapers that we had. They wanted that and things like Time Magazine and things like that. Give them something to bring them a little up to date, and they were very happy about it. And uh, I 
think that was one of the highlights of all the time I spent at sea because just seeing a sailing ship come over the horizon, particularly one that was as famous and important to our history as the Mayflower. At one time during the 60s, I think, you were on a vessel that was named for someone, I don't remember who it was, you'll fill me in, I'm sure, whose only surviving descendant still lived somewhere in Europe, and you made it a point to go visit this person. I'm fascinated by this. Tell me about that. The ship I was on at that time, that was in the early 60s, they were right, around 1963 or so, and it was an old World War II cargo ship that the Navy took over in World War II, and they, they renamed it the Wrangell, and it carried ammunition. In the Navy, ammunition ships are named for volcanoes, either extinct or dormant or even active, like Kilauea, Lassen, Shasta, you know, names like that. The Wrangell is actually named for Mount Wrangell, which is in the southern panhandle of Alaska. There was the Russian explorer that explored the West Coast from the uh, Aleutian Islands down as far as Russian River in Northern California was a Russian baron, Baron von Wrangell. The ship was actually named, the only U.S. Navy ship that ever existed that was named for a Russian. He was quite an elderly gentleman and he lived in Monaco. So the ship I was on, we went into Cannes and uh, we had a vehicle on board that they loaded up with food and all kinds of things. And uh, a couple of sailors and one of the officers drove to Monaco and stocked up his food supplies. And, and they brought him down to the ship for a day. And he was one of the nicest gentlemen you ever saw. And he was the last surviving Wrangell and he had no family. And he was, a, you know how poor a church mouse is? Well, a church mouse is kind of wealthy compared to what he had. He had nothing, nothing whatsoever. So every time the ship got into port near there, they used to bring supplies, like particularly food and anything else that he, or they'd go over and uh, actually do some work on his apartment, like cleaning and painting and things like that. Took good care of him. He, he was well worth it. Does that kind of thing happen often in the Navy? One of the uh, primary things at the Navy, it's not published very much, but uh, humanitarian actions, aid for disasters, uh, every time somewhere in the world is a major earthquake or a tsunami or a volcano or some such disaster with, where they really need help, the Navy just pitches right in and they actually designate ships to go there and uh, do whatever is necessary. One of the better examples that I can think of was a few years ago over in the, the Indonesia they had that big major tsunami that killed several thousand people and made, made an awful mess out there. So they needed help. So the United States sent an aircraft carrier and a couple of other ships there loaded with supplies. And there's a story attached to that because it seems there was a meeting of uh, high-ranking officers in NATO and they were all talking about various things. And it was at the time of the tsunami. And so this Frenchman was there and he was very indignant 
he was talking to an American admiral who shall remain nameless. He said to him, he says, yes, he said, they need help. And what do you do? He said, you send an aircraft carrier. What are you going to do? Go in and bomb and strafe the survivors, you know, and, and finish the destruction and all that. So this uh, U.S. Navy officer said to him, well, aircraft carriers are quite large. They have about 6,000 men on them. They also have the equivalent of three small hospitals with every specialty that you can imagine. Uh, they have medical people at Corman. Uh, they have a large food supply on board. The crew has all kinds of capabilities, uh, mechanical, carpentry work, uh, you know, all that sort of stuff. So he says, the aircraft carrier goes in there. That the only aircraft they flew, he said, were helicopters. Now, these helicopters could take medical people and supplies ashore, deliver them to remote villages and places where it was really needed, could supply food, bring people in, people that needed medical attention and all, they'd fly them out to the carrier and take care of them in the hospitals and then return them home when they were able to go. And he said, you know, the United States has 12 such aircraft carriers. How many does France have? You know what the answer to that question is? None. They have no aircraft carriers. And they didn't, whatever, I don't know what help they rendered. Um, I hope they did some, but uh, it was, wasn't anywhere near close. But in that large assembly of people, you could have heard a pin drop when he said that. <laughs> France had no carriers. Our primary duty, believe it or not, was maritime safety and search and rescue. Being on a destroyer, we, may, we covered a lot of ground at the time. Because if you're operating with a carrier, they put planes in the air and they could search thousands of square miles a day, you know, looking for survivors or pilots or whatever it is. I had an occasion one time where Troyer Squadron I was with was operating and doing anti-submarine games with the carrier USS Wasp. And we were about three or 400 miles east of uh, around Savannah, Georgia in that area, north of the Bahamas. And one of the planes on the carrier went down and of course they set up a search. I was on the staff of the squadron, Destroyer Squadron Commander and the, the other two officers and I were talking about it. We were convinced, we convinced ourselves that we were looking in the wrong area. We were searching a certain area that the Admiral and the staff had decided that's where we were going to search for this pilot that went down. When he went down, they had a locator, they called it a beeper, carried in his pocket, they turned it on and put a signal out, an aircraft could home in on him. Well, they got deeper signals for just a few minutes and then it went off the air, something happened, it died, whatever it was. So they didn't know exactly where he was. And we figured that he was to the south of us, probably between 75 and 100 miles. Commanding officer asked the Admiral staff if we could go send a, several ships down there and do a couple of search lines and see if we, what we could find. 
And they said, no, we're, he's up in this area. He's not down there or anything like that. Well, after two days, they called off the search. He was assumed dead. So as soon as we got released, Commodore, the squadron commander of the destroyers, formed seven destroyers in a line abreast. They're about a mile apart in a line. So the line is seven miles long. And we swept down in the area, and within a couple of hours, one of our lookouts spotted the yellow raft in the water. We went over there and picked the flyer up. He had been out there for two days. That is one of the primary duties that Navy ships have during peacetime. You just do it. You do it. Because if you were out there, you would hope somebody would come along and pick you up, too. All you got to do is find one person out there. And funny thing about this pilot, uh, when you pick up a pilot, the standard procedure is the destroyer will go meet the aircraft carrier uh, nearby and they'll transfer the pilot to the carrier for the medical treatment. Well, this guy had a broken leg. We told him that we had to go alongside the carrier and we had to transfer him back to the carrier. And his response was, I'm not going back to that carrier. They gave up on me. You didn't. At one point, and I'm going to guess it was 1964, since that's when this happened, you were stationed at Cheyenne Mountain, and the earthquake happened in Alaska. You were coordinating, among other things, communications with military communications and AT&T long lines and all these other various organizations that were part of my background. And apparently, you connected the first telephone call. Well, I worked a rotating shift, and that night I was uh, working 11 to 7. I got in at work and the uh, officer that I was relieving was at the desk and he had these phones on, which was unusual. He says, I'm talking to somebody in Alaska. He says, every commercial line was down either because the equipment was out, undersea cables had been put out of business. He was talking to a bar and grill that was up in the northeast part of uh, Alaska, almost into Canada and Yukon way back in the woods. And AT&T and Western Union both told me that they had nothing coming out of Alaska for a few hours there. That this guy I really put on, and I put the phones on, was talking to these people up there and uh, found out that they had a ham radio and they were in contact with various people all over the state. And when they wanted to get some information back to the 48 states, they gave it to the guy that owned the bar and grill, and he got on the telephone, and he talked to us, Western Union and uh, AT&T. They had nobody, nobody. They couldn't talk on their own facilities. So here's a guy on with a ham radio up there, and I don't know how he did it, but by patching around, got to talk to it. And uh, we handled a lot of basic information for restoration of undersea cables and stuff like that. Also, there were people there when we had some time in between. We'd take the name and a home phone number and give it to AT&T. And they would call their families in the middle of the night and tell them that they had been in contact with the son or the father or whoever it was. And that they wanted them to know that he was well and uninjured and doing fine. He was okay. So they made a lot of phone calls for us. But that was a busy night. 
But for a while there, a guy in a bar with a ham radio was the state telephone company for Alaska. <laughs> Not only that, he was the Defense Department <laughs> communicator and, and the Army and the Navy and everybody else communicator. He was the only communicator in the whole state that was doing, that was able to talk to somebody. Part of what caused you to become interested in you know, the Navy and ultimately a career in the Navy was a moment when you were nine years old, you were in New York Harbor watching ships come and go with your mom. Tell me about that. First of all, uh, my mother, her health was very poor and uh, she passed away when I was 11 years old. But she worked in a business office. She was what they called the head bookkeeper, the accountant for this this company. And they were right down on the harbor in the Borough Hall section of Brooklyn. And at that time, prior to World War II, the average working week in the United States was 44 hours. They worked five days a week, eight hours those days, and a half a day Saturday, four hours. So she used to go in. Saturday morning, and I'd go with her, and I was all over that section of Brooklyn. There were museums and parks and all kinds of nice things to do, and I used to sit down on a park bench overlooking the harbor. So one day, you got out early, and I, she knew where I was, where I was going to be sitting. Uh, she came down and uh, said, you know, she said, well, this looks interesting. What kind of ship is that? You know, while well, I was either cargo or carried oil or dry cargo, or passengers, whatever it was, ferry boats and barges carrying trains and all that stuff. And then she started asking me about what country flag is that that ship is on? And I told her, well, like Norwegian, Greek and British and Liberian and all that. I knew all that stuff. Pretty smart kid for, five, for one, nine years old, yeah, if I must say so. So anyhow... <laughs> She was sitting there and she was really enjoying it. So I wasn't in any hurry to leave either. And very quietly, she looked at me and she said, how would you like to drive one of those someday? And at the age of nine years old, the old there's only one answer. And she said something that has stuck with me my whole life and I still try to follow it. She said, if you want to do that, then you have to make it happen because nobody can do it for you. And you know what? That's true. When I first went in, the only reason I went in the Navy was they had a school for electronics technicians. It was 47 weeks straight. Right. Well, uh, the the curriculum on it, uh, when you finished it, it was the equivalent of an electrical engineering degree. There were no humanities or language requirements or anything like that, so you couldn't get a degree in it. But everything else was satisfied. And you had to serve three years for that. So I signed up for three years, and having applied for the school before I enlisted, don't sign anything unless you know what you're going to get. Uh, I went to the school, and I went on a destroyer, the Waldron, which is another story. And my three years was almost up. And in 1950, early 1950, the Navy and the government was very short of money. There was no money. We actually were on our way back from Europe and the ship ran out of toilet paper. That's how bad supplies were and money, just money. So my enlistment was almost up and I wanted to re-enlist. 
As a matter of fact, I had been contacted by the Navy Department Bureau of Personnel about reenlistment because the uh, specialty that I had was in very short supply and they wanted to try to recruit people to stay. So I said, yeah, I'll, I'll sign up, I'll reenlist. So I got all checked out on a Friday afternoon. People in the office said, well, come back Monday morning, we'll give you all your paperwork and you'll be history. So I said, sure, why not? I'll spend a weekend here. So took the weekend on Monday morning, I said, I'm out of here. And I went over to the office and I said, give me my stuff, I'm leaving. Well, that Sunday was the day the Korean War started. They started shooting in Korea. And he says, well, he said, I got news for you. You've been involuntarily extended for one year due to the fact that they started shooting over in Korea. I remember saying to him, you got to be kidding. I don't do anything involuntarily. I wanted to reenlist. And you guys said, no, I had to get out. Now I want out. I had a job lined up and everything else all set. So he says, well, you can't get out. He says, but you can reenlist if you want. So I reenlisted for four years. I wanted to go back on destroyers in the Atlantic fleet because I wanted to go back to the Mediterranean area, which was pretty good service. It was enjoyable over there. They sent me to Treasure Island, California, to the Navy Schools Command, where I was an instructor in the electronic school for four years. And when I got out of there, uh, the Korean War was over. I spent the whole Korean War in San Francisco. At one point, you had a high school teacher who required each student to read a book every week. But there was a caveat. You were not allowed to select books by one particular author. That author was off limits. Who was the author? And why weren't you allowed to read their books? The author was his brother. His brother wrote science fiction, and he was very popular and well-known. Have you ever heard of an author, science fiction author, called Robert Heinlein? Why, yes, I have. That's who his brother was. Okay, back that up again. Back that up. Tell, tell me that again. Now, now, I'm, now I'm confused. The English teacher that I had was Robert Heinlein's brother, and he wanted, uh, he wanted the students to read. So he said, I'd like everybody to turn in one book report a week, but you cannot report on my brother's books because I don't want any bias. He said, I'll give you a zero if you report on his book. I read all the books that he had that were available in the school library. I eventually, through my life, got to meet a lot of very notable people. In 1967 and 8, I was in Vietnam on an aircraft carrier in the Tonkin Gulf. We had a visitor one time. He was doing a project of research for the Defense Department. And he flew out to the Pacific, came aboard the carrier that I was on, and they were there about a week. And I had breakfast with him one morning uh, in the Admiral's mess. And he used to wander around the ship and he talked to everybody. And you probably would recognize the name of Omar Bradley. Well, yeah, Omar Bradley is definitely a name I recognize. He was general of the Army in World War II and chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff during the Korean War but he wasn't the only notable character you met along the way. I was the manager of a status center that the defense communications had up in Cheyenne Mountain. 
we had a responsibility for uh, restoration and recovery of uh, North and South America, plus all the transocean cables, transatlantic and transpacific. That was before satellites. So if you wanted to use something that was fixed, you know, overseas, it had to be by undersea cable. It was up in the mountain and we had all these visitors come. One day I got a notice from uh, our admin office that we were gonna have a visitor in a couple of days. This, that story's got two parts. I'll tell you the second part first. Uh, he was gonna have 15 minutes and he wanted to see Defense Communications Status Center, which I was running. AT&T and Western Union had locations co-located with us in the same space. And he wanted to find out what they were doing and all that. The status center had a little room on the side that was glassed in. And when we had visitors, they would take people and sit them in these nice theater type comfortable chairs, you know, where they could either listen to the briefing or go to sleep or whatever they wanted to do. They told me that the person to be briefed was Mr. Hubert Humphrey, the vice president of the United States. So I thought to myself, wow, who's going to give the briefing, right? Well, I had an army colonel that was in the chain of command above me and I, and he was actually the head of everything up in the mountain. And so I talked to him and I said, well, you're the senior officer up here. I'd assume that you're going to do the briefing. Oh, no. He says, no, I'm not going to do it. You're going to do it. I said, okay, Navy guys, we talk to anybody. I even talk to you. <laughs> so he comes in and he was a Navy lieutenant commander in World War II. And I knew that. So they come into the status center, it was Hubert Humphrey, and he had his naval aide with him, a couple of guys who were secret service that weren't on the access clearance list that I wouldn't let in the door. So he comes in the door, I introduced myself to him, and I told him, I said, I know that you were in the Navy. I have a question for you. Whenever you go visit a Navy ship or station, one of the first things that somebody is going to say to you after they say good morning or whatever it is, would you like a cup of coffee? Well, Navy officers all drink coffee. So he said to me, well, yes. He said, I really would like to have one. He says, I was waiting for somebody to mention it. I said, okay. So I turned around and on my desk was a Navy sterling silver coffee set. The pot, the sugar, the creamery, the spoons, the cups and sauces was all right out of a Navy wardrobe. So I poured the coffee and he tasted it. He says, well, that's pretty good. You Navy guys make good coffee. And I said, well, I got some good news for you. Mr. Vice President, I said, that coffee was made by that Sergeant Major over there. That's Army coffee. Us Navy guys, we taught him how to make real coffee. Well, he laughed. He thought it was fun. Then I said to him, they want to get on with the briefing. And I said, you know, you have a limited time. So I said, they want to put you in that room, sit in a chair, and I put the phones on, and I can talk to you over the sound circuit. And I can hear anything that you say and ask me. But... We have this big status center. There's all kinds of displays and typewriters to change the displays and all that. And if you would prefer to walk around, I'll give the briefing. And as I as we walk around from place to place, you just come along and we'll find something for you to do. Like if we'll have you change some displays and you know whatever you'd like to do. And you're the deputy commander in chief. <laughs> what are you going to tell me? You know, I'm going to tell you you can't do something. Come on. So he walked around. And his aide came out a little later and he says, well, we, we have to go because we have to meet commanding general of Fort Carson and then Air Force Base and the Academy, you know, we're having a meeting and then we're going to have lunch. You know what he told his aide? He says, I'll leave when I'm ready. 
He says, just stand by and wait. He says, besides, they'll wait for me. An hour and a half later, he was still there. So, Jim, here's a hypothetical question for you. A high school student tells you that they're trying to decide whether they should go to college or join the military, and they'd like your advice. What do you tell them? I would say get the education. Absolutely. Do your darndest, work your way through it somehow or other. And then the military is not a bad thing. If you are unable to pay for the college or for some reason or other unable to go to college, the two services that are very big on education, and one is the Navy and the other is the Air Force. You can go in and uh, immediately start taking courses by correspondence. They have all kinds of schools and all that. If it was a one-hour seminar, I would go to it and I'd get the little completion certificate and file it. I had a stack of all kinds of stuff. I, I went to school to for really oddball stuff like uh, how to operate icebreakers in the Arctic. Never had to use it, but I was on a destroyer. One night, we suddenly found ourselves in an ice field off Newfoundland. And I was the only one on board that had any idea what to do to get out of it. When I first got commissioned as an officer on a destroyer, Destroyer Force Atlantic had a training course for new junior officers. And if you really ground them out real quick, like probably too fast, you could do it in about nine or 10 months. The average time to complete the course took a guy about 18 months. I did it in a little over a year. Every once in a while, maybe once or twice a week, As a junior officer, I had to do a day's navigation. When the Marines landed in Beirut in 1958, we were on a patrol line. There were two destroyers. uh, I was on the Decatur, and the Rich was with us. And we patrolled up and down the coast between five and 10 miles off the coast of Lebanon. And I had the, the navigation duty. So I took sightings. I figured out what our position was. And I looked at it and I said, something wrong. I took a depth finding and I took range and bearing to four points, prominent points of land, plotted them. Well, that qualified as a fix. You either have a fix or you have an estimated position. And you don't don't rely on an estimated position because you could be miles off. But I had a fix. I had all the qualifications for it. So I had to write a report for the captain. And I wrote it out and I put down the latitude and longitude that I had computed celestially. Then I wrote another report with the actual one on and I gave both of them to him. And I said, this is the true position. This one here, there's an error in there somewhere and I couldn't find it in time to get the report to you by eight o'clock. So that's what it is. And he says, well, when you find the problem, let me know what it is, right? So I was working on it. And The latitude in that position was exactly the same latitude I found celestially, but the longitude was way to the east. It was over 30 miles east of Beirut. You know what's east of Beirut, about 30 miles? Desert. (laughs) We had no sand around us.
he was quite a guy. He was uh, very interesting to work for in a very authoritative, pleasant way. He knew what he wanted and he never let you forget the way he wanted stuff done. And if you had a comment or a suggestion to change it or do something else, he was always open to listen. And nine times out of 10, he'd go ahead and do what you recommended instead of what he had to come up with. And I never hit anything with the ship. So he was something else. One of the duties of a Navy officer, when you stand, when you qualify as the officer of the deck, that's the guy in charge of the bridge. When you qualify for that, there are things you have to do. For instance, you have to be able to drive the ship in and out of a harbor, put it to an anchorage, pick up the anchorage and get underway with a pilot on board if one's provided, put it alongside a pier and get it underway from a pier. It's a lot of like handling a, a, a you know a 400 foot uh, motorboat. The thing was, I had never done it before, but I had observed it every time I had a chance when we were fueling a, alongside another ship for some purpose. My duty station was up on the bridge or in a combat area. So I would go out on the bridge and, and watch what was going on. So I had a pretty good idea. I had an idea what went on, but I had never done it. And it's a big difference. I was working one day down below and the, the messenger from the bridge came down and said, the captain wants to see you on the bridge right away, right away now. So I dropped everything and thought, what do, what do I do now? You know. <laughs> so I went up there and he says, oh, he says, take over the watch. He says, uh, we were behind an oiler. We were 500 yards back in what they call a lifeguard station. And I want you to take it in for fueling alongside the oiler. Well, to go in, the ships travel at, at that time at about 12 knots, which gave you pretty good steerage. You could control the ship real well, right? Moving, old ship moved to 12 knots and you had to come up alongside the oiler and stop where your fueling stations were opposite the hoses they had rigged ready to send over. And then you had to hold it there for about 45 minutes between 80 and 100 feet away, depending on what the captain wanted. If he wanted 80 feet, he gave him 80 feet. They had a distance line that every 20 feet it had a little tag on it, marker with 20, 40, 60, 80, and so forth. So you could tell exactly how far apart the ships were. So he says to me, okay, you got it. I assumed the watch and took the con. They signaled us that they were ready and I kicked it in the butt made an approach, slowed down. I got the ship stopped to 12 knots and steaming alongside the oiler. Mrs. Mulverhill's son, James, lucked out again because I was exactly where we were supposed to be. Now you've got a, a ship that fully loaded with over 5,000 tons and you're sliding up there and you slow down the engine. You don't slow down. You know that, you keep going. I was exactly where I was supposed to be. So the captain says to me, don't worry about it. He says, I'll be right behind your shoulder. He says, I won't let you do anything wrong. And if you got any questions, I'm right here. Just ask me. I said, all right. So I'm busy. Kept station. Worked out pretty good. It wasn't that hard to do. And we finished fueling in about 45 minutes or so. Sent the hoses back, unrigged the, the wires and the phone lines and all that stuff. And we got an assignment to go to another station. It was a big round formation and we were in the middle of it. I had to go to a place out on the edge of the screen, about two miles away. So I calculated course and speed I had to take and all that. And I was on my way and I looked around. There's no captain on the bridge. You're not there. 
So I said to the quartermaster, I said, hey, where'd the old man go? Oh, he says, right about the time he got alongside, he went down on deck and he was at the forward fueling station the whole time. I said, you mean he wasn't up here? He says, no. <laughs> oh, man. So the captain came up and he got a big smile on his face. And I said, oh, I've got a question for you, Captain. He says, yeah, what is it? I said, you told me that you were going to be right behind me in case you needed you. And you weren't. He says, you didn't need me, did you? And I said, well, no, I didn't think so. He says, I didn't think so either. So he says, how's that for confidence? Jim Mulvihill, thank you for your service and thank you for your stories. I have a feeling that we didn't take too much out of your well. We'll be back for more. Hey, thanks for dropping by. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project, where we're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did, I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.